Is the killer in there? Probably. It's a horror podcast. It's going to frighten and disturb us. We're doing this at our own risk. <laughs> Ready? Ready for the dark tales when we dare not close our eyes. Brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. to the No Sleep Podcast video store. I'm David Cummings. Our VCR is ready to play stories about the bonds which connect us all too tightly together. In honor of Pride Month, this episode will feature stories by authors from the LGBTQ community. And all the stories this week are featured in a new anthology project coming out soon. It's called Black Rainbow, and it's a book which is presenting horror stories with realistic depictions of LGBTQ people, not the typical stereotypes. This is a book full of stories from experienced and published authors, and one which would be an excellent addition to your horror library. To learn more, go to blackrainbowhorror.com or check the show notes for more details. And so, it is with pride that we kick off this episode. So turn down the lights and grab the remote, because it's time for our feature presentation. In our first tale, we meet a couple who decide to play a little game, but this game involves truth and lies. And in this story, shared with us by author Alison Seib, we learn trust is important, but sometimes it can be misplaced. Performing this tale are Nicole Goodnight and Jessica McAvoy. So when you're looking for the truth, you should prepare to be told eight little lies. Love is about trust. Do you trust me? Emily and I were curled together on soft bedsheets, our limbs becoming one another's blankets to shield us from February's midwinter bite. Candles illuminated the matchbox room, scenting it with vanilla and honeysuckle. Unthinking, I ran my finger along a tattoo that tailed its way around Emily's arm. Thin beads of ivy forming an intricate lattice of skin and ink. I love you. That's not what I said. I asked if you trust me. Her voice was caramel smooth. I surveyed the gaze she gave me, drowning for a moment in the chestnut depths. She blinked. You're serious? Emily nodded, little cascades of her hair bristling. The biting wind outside bellowed. I glanced towards the window and then back to Emily. Her hand touched my shoulder. My hesitation spoke to her, stronger than words. I had problems with trust. That baggage weighed around my neck, my own personal millstone that I tried, as best as I could, not to belabor onto Emily. I pressed a smile, a sensation of muscular movements that came so readily in her presence. Let's play a game. 
I leaned closer, feeling her breath against my skin, my fingers velvet on her thigh. Mm, a naughty game? An honest one, Carly. I slid my head back, unsure of her words. After so many months together, games came to us both frequently. Hide and seek among the towering stacks of the university library, which changed instead into a game of hushed and eager lovemaking while dodging the eyes of hungover students. Only last Saturday, we had raced along the chilly seafront, beating back the cold with our heavy breaths, finally collapsing into one another's arms by the moldering ruins of the pier. I inhaled, almost tasting her. I'm game. It's an easy game. It's called Eight Little Lies. Eight Little Lies? She rolled her lips against the nape of my neck, nuzzling gently. We all tell them little things to make ourselves seem better than we are. A lie we tell people, or tell ourselves. And you want me to start? A tender little smile and a glimmer of candlelight in her eyes. I'll start. Gradually, and with hesitating concern, Emily touched her necklace. Fingertips brushed the small pendant that hung there. Little silver wings formed into the impression of a soaring eagle. I told you this was my grandmother's. I nodded in response. It isn't. I bought it from a stall in town last year. Why? I liked it. But I wanted to give it a story. Wanted to make it sound important. But it isn't. She let her fingers drop, releasing the pendant. That's a little lie. Do you understand how the game works? Okay. I exhaled, considering my reply. Nothing came to mind. My thoughts remained a silent void. Uh, what should I say? Anything. Anything at all. It's just a game. <laughs> Do you remember how we first met? At the student union. You were drunk. I was trying to read. You came over from the bar and asked me if you could sit with me. That wasn't the first time I had seen you. I noticed you before. I'd actually wanted to talk to you for a while before I worked up the courage to. I was nervous and didn't even know you were into other girls, so... That's why I'd had a few drinks to work up the courage. A few? As I remember, you'd had about seven. <laughs> That's how nervous I was to talk to you. I laughed. <laughs> then like a cool breeze on a hot summer night, so did Emily. Her laughter caught the fire of mine and soon we were both alight with it, giggling like school children. Her face, I thought, became illuminated with her smile. Okay, your turn. I never knew my parents. Not my real ones. I was raised by my aunt. They lived far off in the forest. She took care of my schooling, and I didn't have many friends. Wasn't it lonely? No. Aunt and Nancy had everything I needed. She took good care of me. She paused and kissed me. Playfully, she lightly nipped her teeth at the skin of my chest. Your turn. I looked down at Emily. She looked so frail in my arms, a spindly bundle of long limbs and dark eyes. I felt a yearning, a gaping urge to tell her more. Uh, when I was a child, I ran away from home. Stayed away for three nights, hiding in an old warehouse at the docks. Why? I can't remember. That was a lie. I hadn't wanted to tell her that it had been over some stupid, trivial little argument with my father. Did I want to tell Emily how much I hated my father? Or that he was the only person in my entire life that I hadn't come out to? 
I had already opened one door by confessing to her about how hard it had been for me to approach her in the first place. Maybe this step was too much. It was a long time ago. My turn? Emily shifted, letting her weight slide to her side. I bobbed my head. My aunt basically raised me. Taught me everything I know. How to cook, how to knit, how to hunt. You hunt? (laughs) Grew up in the forest, remember? I thought, yes, it makes sense. It was sensible that growing up in a forest, Emily would have to learn how to hunt. Still, the idea seemed so different, so unlike the small, fragile, calm-spirited girl who sat beside me. I pushed away the thoughts, the silly image of red-coated lords and ladies on horseback pursuing panic-stricken foxes, and tried to imagine Emily. I tried to picture her hunched over a deer, a rifle resting against her slender shoulders, a proud smile on her lips as she posed for a photograph. Still, the image I'd drawn didn't quite settle right. It's your turn. Uh, I don't know. Come on. Try. One more. I don't like this game. Are you afraid? Emily pulled back slightly. Something about her voice made the lump in my throat swell a little. No. I closed my eyes. That had been the second time that I had lied during this game, and I felt a pang of guilt deep inside me. Okay, one more, but then we stop. Agreed? She nodded, my lips pressed tight. That scar on my shoulder? It it was a tattoo. (laughs) Really? What kind was it? I turned my gaze. I wasn't sure what thought hung the heaviest in my mind. That she would think me young and wild for getting a tattoo in the first place, or ashamed enough of it later to have it removed. It was stupid. It doesn't matter. For a moment, her look grew stern. It was an expression that she donned when seriousness was called for, when the time for joking had fallen to the side. Tell me. I didn't look up. A small doubt crossed my mind. Had I offended her? I regretted my decision. Feeling guilty, I forced out my answer. It was my brother. You never told me you had a brother. He passed away four years ago. I had his name on my shoulder. Emily looked at me her eyes wide open as though to absorb the stars around us. I'm sorry. No, it's all right. I thought that I would carry him with me. You changed your mind. It it didn't seem right. I mean, it felt more like I was celebrating his death instead of honoring his memory. I could sense the confusion in her gaze. She looked at me, almost as if examining me. I continued, the words tumbling from me. While I had his name tattooed on my shoulder, I felt bad. Guilty, I suppose. It felt like I was forcibly tying him to me. When I had it removed, it felt as though I were releasing him, letting him move on. Does that make sense? I didn't know if it did. The words were clumsy to me, as if they were too heavy and ill-fitting to put my thoughts into a sharp relief. I looked at Emily, into her smooth and beautiful face. I expected distance from her, a look of hesitation. Instead, she nodded. It does. You wanted to carry him with you, but you found a different place to keep him. She touched my chest, delicate fingers over my heart. In here. Nodding, I slipped my hand around hers. You want to keep playing? I nodded. Emily righted herself, letting her (laughs) laughter fall. The name of this game, Eight Little Lies? 
That's from a nursery rhyme my old aunt and Nancy used to tell me. Oh, I don't know it. Eight little lies to catch the flies. To snare them in webs spun by eight little legs. Then sit back and watch with your eight little eyes. The lump in my throat returned. Only now it sat lower, hovering high up in my chest. Something about the laughter I'd experienced just a moment before felt wrong. Somehow deeply improper. I don't understand. It's just a nursery rhyme. My aunt taught me to say it to any prey that I'd hunted. Coldness drifted over me. The skin of my forearms bristled. I leaned back trying to move, but Emily held me in her warm smile. Don't worry. She kissed my neck. Outside, the wind bellowed. I winced. I was no playful nibble. It stung hard enough that my hand slid to my neck before I even realized it. I looked down at my fingers, barely noticing the blood they'd carried away from my neck. I tried to move my fingertips, but they were already growing numb, alien to me, like little phantom limbs. What... what is this? Shh, relax. You'll be fine. It's just a neurotoxin. You bit me. My tongue was becoming a numb, heavy organ hanging limply in my mouth. She didn't reply. The room grew dim, and my body met the bedsheets as Emily cradled me down onto them. It'll act fast. You won't feel a thing. She was right. The sudden sense of fear was gone, fading into a foggy mist. Emily watched me, slowly spinning her fingers together. I could tell that you were the right choice. What you said about your brother, about him being part of you, I knew you'd understand. Gradually, with almost deliberate care, she drew a thin strand of webbing from her fingertips and started to fashion it into a cord. I told you that you could trust me, and I was right. You'll get to be part of me now. We'll be together forever. That's what love is about, right? I wished that I could have formed a smile as she slid the silken trail of string around me. She was right. We'd be together forever. I didn't feel afraid. My panic had become as numb as my body. I did trust her, and I always would. I looked up into her loving face and caught the reflection of the candlelight, shining against her pupils like eight tiny little eyes. Have you ever been to a house and instantly felt like something just isn't quite right? Flowing out into its inhabitants, creating a sense of unease? In this tale, shared with us by author C.M. Scandrath, we're introduced to one such unsettling dwelling. Performing this tale are Erica Sanderson, Addison Peacock, James Cleveland, David Alt, and Penny Scott Andrews. So prepare to find out that there's no place quite like home, at least not when you live in the House of Edges.
The house is never empty. I listen to the other inhabitants leave, heavy feet on the dilapidated stairs, voices receding, swallowed by the wood and plaster of the long corridors. Even after those sounds have dissipated and I'm left here alone, I can feel those who lived here before. Many essences suffuse the bones of this sprawling manor. There are far more rooms than current residents, as the house isn't exactly the most desirable living space. It hunches on the edge of a cliff at the end of a cul-de-sac, and one might think it was the sort of place which the hip and wholesome would flock for romantic sea views and artful isolation. But were you to view the house yourself, you'd soon see why they don't. The landlord, a tall, skeletal man of Polynesian descent, told me that it was once called Hedge's House. It was a beautiful place in its heyday, surrounded by thick privet and spreading elms, their boundary boskage concealing interior gardens rampant with camellias, almost maze-like in their placement. But time was not kind to the lands around the house. One coastal storm too many had eaten away the land behind it, bringing the edge of the cliff creeping ever closer. Eventually, the owners had abandoned it, finally moving out when only a narrow strip of grass separated the walls of the house from the 50-foot precipice. That had been more than 20 years ago, and hungry erosion had since claimed even that strip of sward. On the stony beach below the house, lathes of timber and chunks of plaster bleached in the salty air, the cliff having claimed the outermost room of the house, a solar or conservatory perhaps. The glass from its windows were now smooth, transparent jewels, tumbled by the lashing tides. No one in their right mind would live in a crumbling house teetering on the edge of such a deathly fall. But then, not a single soul living here could be called sane. In a piquant display of irony, someone had knocked out the first H from the rusted wrought iron gate that sat across the gap from the outer hedge, so that it read, Edge's house. I'd moved here due to financial constraints, as the house was by far the cheapest place around for the size of the rooms. I think the door to my second floor abode was lime green when I first moved in. But in a curious twist of fate, the paint had slowly flaked away until it revealed an undercoat of vibrant yellow-orange, my favourite colour. Things like that seemed to just happen in the house, and over time you stopped questioning it, as each coincidence seemed harmless enough. My room was spacious, airy and high-ceilinged. The regular pattern of scuff marks that scarred the wooden floorboards made me speculate whether the previous occupant had been a dancer, a theory borne out by a bloody-toed ballet shoe I found behind the ancient steel oil heater. The windows were huge and arched, letting in all the blue-white light reflecting off the ocean below the cliff. That first night was a hard one. I'd moved in during a manic phase, the newest medication still finding its way through the maze of my brain, and I'd cleaned the room all day until my body, at last, was exhausted. But lying in the unfamiliar single bed that night, springs creaking beneath me, sleep did not come. Instead, my ears betrayed my racing mind by picking up and amplifying every sound the house made, and it made plenty. Oh, it creaked, and it groaned so loudly that I feared some part of it was alive and in pain, imminently collapsing. 
when something snapped, forcefully and abruptly, sending a shudder through the entire place. I could bear no more. I ran down the darkened stairwell in my pyjamas, weeping in terror and hoping that I would make it out before the whole house tumbled over the cliff. But it did not fall. It seemed so impossible that it still stood. I could not bring myself to go back inside. So I stood there in the tangled camellia garden, shivering with fear, looking up at the strange hodgepodge of windows that peppered the outside of the manor. The scent of tobacco wafted through the air, and a woman's warm voice called from the edge of the light near the front door. It's not to worry about, love. The house is always shifting, making strange noises. If it was going to fall down, it would have done so long, long ago. And that's how I met Mary Mudgeway. In the flat next door lives one Mary Mudgeway, hanging half in the hall and half in her door. She stands there for sailors who came for her favours in the days of her past, but don't anymore. I've never been a smoker, but I became one after Mary befriended me. She gifted me her spare pipe, and we would pack the bowls with a fragrant blend of her own making and puff away like a pair of Victorian gentlemen watching the sun set over the peninsula. Stuck somewhere between old and young, Mary was still beautiful in a faded way, like a dried blossom hanging forgotten in a florist's shop. When she smiled, the crow's feet multiplied, and when she spoke, a webwork of lines tugged at her lips, themselves plumped with products she made from bee venom and lemon. She said she still had a few clients who came to her, but as her body had betrayed her by aging, most of the work had faded away. Having never learnt another trade and suffering extreme dyslexia, Mary had chosen the house for the same reason as the rest of us. The rooms were large and the rent was low. <laughs> One night, as we chuffed sweet herbs by the porch, she asked me if I'd ever made love to another woman and delicately placed a hand on the curve of my hip. The gesture had thrilled me briefly, but through beetroot blushes I told her that I didn't feel that way about women. Long after she had gone, I could still feel the heat of her palm where it had grazed me. I climbed the gap-toothed spiral stairs to the balcony on the corner of the third floor, where you could see into the windows along the southwest wall of the house. Mary undressed languidly and sensually, as though quite aware she was being observed, slipping on a gown of faded coral silk. She opened her window wide. For a moment, I thought she was going to jump that she'd had enough of life in the crumbling house. I may even have been vain enough to wonder whether my rejection had been the last straw, but instead she just waited there, the breeze from the ocean stirring the hems of her robe. And it was then that I smelled the change. Rank with the reek of dead fish, the air turned foul. Rising up from the stony beach below, the fingers of the stench curled around the balcony and gripped my throat, making me gag. Decay and sweet rot, dusted with the sharp mustiness of rotting seaweed. Mary saw him before I did, her head tracking him as he lurched up the rocks and dug strong fingers into the face of the cliff, 
a stinking man, his oilskin coat and hat in greasy, fluttering tatters. Paralyzed, I watched with guilt and trepidation as he scaled the precipice. Then, gifting a final waft of death into the night air, he hauled himself through Mary's window. I saw her step in, and I saw her lips brush the grey flesh under his hat. So gently and tenderly she undressed him, removing first the heavy coat, then the sea-battered woolen rags he wore beneath, until the pallid, naked corpse of a sailor stood before her. His ragged, crab-eaten erection stood proudly below the cavity where his organs had once clustered, long gone to the creatures of the deeps. I'd like to tell you that I was not such a voyeur that I watched an undead sailor ravage my neighbour, but that would be a lie. Spellbound with horror, I watched as Mary expertly plied her trade, and when the lusty corpse was done, I watched him place a pile of tarnished silver coins in her shaking hands, then leave the same way that he arrived. I understood then exactly why Mary had made a pass at me, for if her bed had been full that night, there would have been no room for dead men. And she knew I had no access to any sunken treasure to pay for her services, even if I'd wanted to. Down on the first floor dwells a Peter Petrowski, bald as an egg and skin thin as a call. Not catching, he told me, of his wasting malady, but other than that, never speaks much at all. When I first chanced upon Peter, I thought him some kind of ghoulish spirit wandering the house. Excuse me. Shamefully, I squealed in fear rather than saying hello, then ran to Mary who told me that the gaunt man was a resident, not a revenant. With a thick Polish accent and very little command of English, he was a quiet man who kept mostly to his rooms, which had an outer door to the gardens and a peeling veranda. Some days his skin had more colour, but his general pallor spoke of some grave illness, as did the dark circles that bruised the pouches beneath his watery blue eyes. When the hearse pulled up outside his door, I assumed the mystery illness had finally bested him, and he had finally shuffled off this mortal coil. But instead, Peter hauled his grey-suited bones from the driver's seat, quite alive. I admit I enjoyed the black humour of a man so close to the edge of death working with the dead. Anyone stumbling into his workplace might think him a client, not a mortician. As I understood it, his work was sparse. Exclusively serving the local Polish community, he lived off their deaths like some ancient bald vulture, hauling bodies home to the house where he meticulously embalmed them. Whenever he had a client, the eye-watering stink of potent chemicals wafted up from his church-like windows. He seemed an ascetic and antisocial man, but one restless night when my mania would not let me sleep, I crept down to the gardens for a pipe of Mary's sweet herbs and rather than the formaldehyde fumes, music and laughter were emanating from Peter's steepled windows. Peeking through the warped stained glass, I chanced a glimpse of him inside. He was dancing as if illness had never once visited him. A tall woman, resplendent in an orange and yellow dress, pressed her rosy cheek to his grey flesh as they turned about the floor, and her pin-up curls shone golden in the candlelight. 
that old Peter was such a ladies' man, who would have guessed? As my weeks in the house turned to months, I observed three different women in his room at night. None visited more than once, and stranger still, each wore the same bright dress. There was a story here that needed to be written, a mystery that needed unravelling. I watched him for days, coming and going in his great black car. When eventually he hauled a heavy coffin from the back of the hearse and wheeled it to his little workshop, I decided to brave the fumes. With a handkerchief knotted around my face, I peered through the crack of the opened window. The deceased was a woman, and I watched as Peter carefully and reverently prepared her body. When he methodically laid out a dozen old-fashioned hair curlers and draped an orange and yellow dress over the back of a chair, I felt a preternatural thrill shoot up my spine. In his tiny kitchen, Peter had set a table for two, complete with guttering candles and large glasses of scarlet wine. He gently arranged the dead woman in her seat, then put the needle down on a battered record player and took his place opposite her as a scratchy violin began to play. For many long minutes they sat there, the half-dead man and the all-dead woman. Then, with a small sigh and a tilt of her head, colour blushed her cheeks and she opened her eyes. As though this was a perfectly ordinary thing, Peter began to speak in his own language. Gone was the halting, broken English. In his mother tongue, his voice was lyrical, deep and hypnotic. Even from my hidden perch by the window, its resonance sent pleasant tingles across my scalp and down the nape of my neck. I suddenly wanted Peter's lips to whisper mysterious words against my skin. They drank and they laughed. Her hand brushed his and they shared a kiss. The record changed and they danced to some lively polka, the orange and yellow dress swirling about her hips and their mouths meeting more and more often until he picked her up in his arms that no longer trembled with illness and he carried her through the door to his bedroom. In the morning, the bright dress was hung in a locked closet and the woman's body wheeled back out to the hearse, dead as cold wax once more. I returned to my room to write down what I had seen, perplexed by the events I had observed. Had I not already witnessed Mary's tryst with the dead sailor, I might have written the whole incident off as delusions born of a formaldehyde-addled nightmare. But I knew that there was something highly unnatural happening in this house, some uncanny power at work, and I needed to know more. The ransoms are fighting, a clattering racket. Thrown pans and dishes hit the walls and the floor. No children in evidence in their first floor residence, just a man and his wife in perpetual war. We all heard the ransoms fighting. When the wind blew from the south, it was unavoidable. The breeze pushed their shouted imprecations back through our windows and made all of us cringe. She should leave him. Mary would shake her head as we drank tea in my kitchen, her comforting presence soothing my nerves as much as the hot brew. There's no doubt that she's right. And yet, Ruby and Robbie stay together, 
despite the incendiary hatred that fills their part of the house. He is a tall, thrust-jawed man with a widower's peak and his heavy workman's boots thump up and down the stairs like artillery warning that the fighting will shortly begin. There's always a good ten minutes of calm after he comes home. A golden window of silence where neither husband nor wife says anything to one another. And all we hear is the bang of pipes from their shower while he sluices off the dust and grime from the demolition sites he works on. Oh, they don't always fight. Sometimes there are ordinary conversations and dinner sounds which are quickly followed by some of the loudest fucking I've ever heard in my life. He grunts and bawls like a rabid hog, and she screams while the headboard smashes into the walls until my lampshade starts to swing in time to their rhythm. You don't see Ruby very often, usually only at night and in the weekends. She's a delicate thing, long dark hair framing a pale face and bruised red lips, a waspish hourglass frame the exact opposite of her husband's hulking, brutish trapezoid. Their domestic disputes seem to revolve around the fact that Robbie works hard and expects Ruby to fulfil all of her wifely duties to his satisfaction on his return home. In turn, she resents being locked away all day, her whole existence captive to his whims and desires. Why she didn't just leave him was another, albeit more prosaic, kind of mystery. Every time I passed her during my sleepless explorations of the strange house, I would feel a pang of guilt that I wasn't doing anything to help her. When I lost a whole night of precious sleep to her screaming, No! 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 during one of their hours-long fucking sprees, concern and compassion finally overcame my complacency. I decided I was going to do something. I knocked until my knuckles were bruised, listening for any signs of life inside the Ransom's quarters, but not a sound betrayed the presence of anyone inside. Robbie was at work. I had listened to his boots stomping away hours ago. I knew that he locked the door fast behind him, so if Ruby wished to leave, her only egress would be a precarious climb down the ramshackle side of the house over the cliff. I was angry now. Angry enough to do something stupid. When I'm in one of my high phases, I need to do things. To change the world around me. To frenetically create or destroy. In this instance, being denied entry to their rooms was the focus of my frustration and determination. The room beside theirs was empty, full of flattened cardboard boxes and broken furniture, but the windows were wide enough to climb out. Clinging to the side of the house, laughing wildly into the wind at the terrifying drop to the beach below me, I swung around the exterior and crabbed along the narrow ledge until I reached their rickety balcony. A single lonely chair sat upon it, warped by the weather. Inside, their apartment was a curious duality. One side of the windows were draped with lacy curtains, while the opposite side was shaded by old bamboo blinds, dusty and bug-eaten. Men's clothing was strewn about the lounge, but shelves and hooks meant for books and crockery held only women's clothing. Washed, ironed, and neatly folded or hung. To the left of the bathroom sink was an impressive array of neatly placed cosmetics and beauty products, 
while the right side of the porcelain unit held only a bar of abrasive soap and a pungent tub of swarfaga, both sitting in a pool of greasy grime. In a water-spotted glass behind the sink sat a single toothbrush. The door to the bedroom was closed. I vividly imagined that beyond it suffered Ruby, bound and gagged, cuffed to one of the steel radiators ubiquitous to the house. Or worse, no longer suffering, lying murdered in a pool of her own blood. Gritting my teeth, I pushed open the door to see only a drooping single bed, narrow and empty. Now, I didn't know what to think. It was as if Ruby didn't exist. Before I could pry further or stop to muse on exactly what was happening here, the sound of heavy, angry steps began thumping up the stairs. Robbie was home early. There was no way I could make it out over the balcony in time. I'd have to resort to the age-old trope of hiding in the wardrobe, hoping that I could make my escape while he showered. I waited in the camp for darkness, listening to Robbie undressing, muttering to himself. The shower came on, a stutter of ancient pipes in the wall near my head making me jump. Incongruously, Robbie's hateful voice began to sing, and I crept out of my hidey hole. Then something odd and miraculous happened. As I listened, his voice rose one octave, then another. Before another three bars were done, the beautiful soprano voice of Ruby rang out clearly from the bathroom. The door was ajar, and pressing my eye to it, I saw only one body in the shower. The pale curves of the diminutive wife shrouded in the steam. Ruby! She froze, her voice dying away. Who's there? The girl from the second floor. We pass on the stairs sometimes. What are you doing in here? I came to help you. I came to talk to you about Robbie. Where is he? The door opened and Ruby stared out at me. She was stark naked, her hair beading water on skin so translucent she seemed slightly transparent, and her dark eyes were huge. You have to get out before he comes back. What do you mean? Look at the balcony. Through the cloudy glass of the double doors, I saw the single chair I'd passed on the way in, but now a shadow sat in it roughly the size and shape of Robbie. And as I watched, it grew more solid, more substantial and real. I don't understand. Unselfconscious, she began to move about the lounge, picking out clothes from the neat feminine piles. He's not real. He's the person I have to be during the day to survive. This is the real me but I can only exist in this house. Do you understand? The shadow on the balcony turned its head, resolving smears of dark eyes and a bulging jaw now, 
insubstantial fists clenching and unclenching. He'll kill you if he realizes you're here. You need to get out. And so, fear and confusion lending me speed, I fled. I've seen her since, on the stairs and in the garden. Those great, expressive eyes pleading me not to tell anyone, not to expose her secret. I think that when Robbie sleeps, she can exist alone. And that's why she lets him beat her and rape her in that sagging single bed. Perhaps after he has expended his towering rage and frustration, after he has grunted his seed into her, he becomes a shadow and fades away, only reappearing when dawn breaks over the side of the house. Like all of us here, Ruby has found a precarious balance that allows her to exist. I think for me, her price would be too high. In the southwestern spire dwells Jeremy Jackson, green painted nails and tufted spike hair. As a butcher's apprentice, hands red to the wrist, he hauls bags of offal, leaving stains on the stairs. There are always seagulls circling the spire on the corner of the house, and I don't know how Jeremy stands it. Their incessant calls would drive me mad, and I think before long I'd borrow the slug gun the landlord uses on rats and I'd blast every screeching bird out of the sky. With carefully drawn eyebrows, twin lip piercings, and a hint of a lisp, Jeremy's sexuality is proudly on display to the world, almost as obvious as his ribs. Thin to the point of painful, his wrists like cotton reels, any whispers of gay behind his back are probably less frequent than hushed murmurs of anorexia. Still, having run the gamut of eating disorders myself, I'm not one to judge. And Jeremy seemed happy enough, living alone in his crumbling tower like the queerest wizard of them all. We have a sort of unspoken friendship that is quite different from the one that I share with Mary. As an artist of rotating disciplines, my own colourful appearance seemed to mark me as a sort of person Jeremy can count on as an ally. Sometimes he'll join Mary and me for a pipe, though the pungent tang of his own smoke tells me that his blend is much less legal than ours. He always offers me a puff, of course, but... I decline. Experience taught me long ago that weed wreaks merry havoc with my medication, and the immediate hazy benefits aren't worth the suicidal lows that follow. How he survives as a butcher's apprentice, let alone how he got the job in the first place, is quite beyond me. But I do know that he's very good at it, and he really seems to enjoy it, even though it pays a pittance. And there's an added bonus worth more than money as far as Jeremy is concerned. He gets to take home all the offal he can carry. For quite a long time, I couldn't figure out what his secret was, what fell bargain he'd struck with the house. All the rest of us found a knife edge to balance upon, so what was his? Emboldened by my other discoveries, and suspecting Jeremy's very feyness might predispose him to know what I was talking about, I decided to simply ask him. Green eyes regarded me levelly. Then he replied quietly. I feed it. How? Come by tonight after sundown and I'll show you.
The stairs grew dusty the higher I climbed, and mildew spread a dark patina across the ancient plaster walls. To reach the spire, you had to briefly exit the main part of the manor, braving the walk across a narrow span of crumbling brick. The rusted iron rails to either side would be no help at all should the wind roaring around you get its wish to throw you off. Stains spattered the bricks, bloody and bold, a slippery reminder of Jeremy's grisly trade in animal flesh. I wondered just how many double-bagged bundles of gore had been dragged over the causeway, and how often he had nearly fallen. The pea-green door opened at my touch, revealing a neat room that had been largely converted to a kitchen. Gas bottles and a stove sat to one side, and a large wooden table dominated the rest of the spire, well scarred with knife marks. But what I truly noticed first were the smells. Several huge pots were bubbling on the gas stove, vats of broths and gravies, which Jeremy stirred by turns as he waved hello with the other emaciated hand. Inside the oven, large baking dishes lurked. A waft of rich meat made me salivate as he opened the door to prod something with a skewer, unfamiliar colour in his cheeks. Right on time. The meal he served was massive and exquisite, and he gave me a quirky smile as he placed the steaming plate in front of me. I really hope you like paleo. Which part or which animal each delicacy of the meat-rich meal had come from, I didn't ask. But it was clear that everything consisted of organs or waste offcuts, the faintly rubbery texture of liver and heart mixing pleasantly with fatty marrow gravy and blood sausage. But what struck me even more than Jeremy's cooking ability was his ability to eat. Plate after plate vanished into that scarecrow body, the mismatched bone china licked clean by his eager tongue. It belied belief that his shrunken stomach could hold so much, and I stopped eating long before he even slowed, unable to prevent myself from staring as he wolfed down even more. Eventually there was nothing left bar the scraps of meat on my own plate. His eyes fastened on the congealing remains, ravenous and sly. You gonna eat that? With a shake of my head, I pushed my leftovers across the table. He sat for a while, silent but for his gut rumbling as he digested the epic feast. Anticipation bubbled somewhere beneath my own ribcage as I waited for something to happen. He began taking off his apron and shirt. The next part isn't very pleasant. I just thought I'd warn you. Dumbly, I nodded as he walked bare-chested to the window, every bone in his torso a stark stripe of shadow. The balloon of his belly was shiny as a ripe boil in the moonlight as he rested it tenderly on the sill. Hanging over the lintel, Jeremy opened his mouth and began to vomit. It came out in a torrent, thick and bloody. The force of it even gushed twin jets from his nostrils. I heard a nearly subsonic moan escape from the boy as the geyser of puke pumped down the side of the house. Far below, under the trajectory from the window, a darkened split opened in the roof, quickly widening to an eager hole. A mouth, but one ringed with broken glass and chunks of brick for its grinding teeth. And into that maw the nutritious vomit poured. Jeremy fed the house just as a mother bird would feed her chick 
It was too much. The rich food was already sitting poorly in my stomach, and I felt my gut heave in sympathy, a brown slurry splattering the floor. Jeremy didn't notice. His eyes were rolled back, showing only silvery whites as the river of semi-digested food continued to flow. Eventually, it had to stop, and the wasted boy slumped sideways to the floor, his chin and chest caked with a bib of macerated offal. The hole in the house closed with a crack that made the entire spire shiver, and Jeremy opened one eye and regarded me weakly. If you wouldn't mind, could you carry me to bed? I cleaned up as best I could. I washed the dishes while the boy slept, ensconced in the tiny gabled attic above the kitchen, his gentle snores keeping me company. What this house was, I was no longer sure. At first, I thought it offered each of us what we wanted, at a price. But the more I saw and the more I learned, the less this seemed true. If I wanted to know what was truly going on, I would need to speak to the person who had resided here longer than anyone. The landlord. In the bowels of the building labours Tamar Taifai. Shirt stained with the sweat of landlord and master, he hauls concrete and planks to shore up the shanks of the teetering house made of edges and plaster. When he's not laboring somewhere amongst the crumbling foundations, the landlord is often found in a little office at the end of the entry hall, one hand pressed to his forehead as he scribbles in his neat books. Not a man fond of technology, he barely tolerates a landline in the house and is prone to long rants about the government if you even mention the possibility of Wi-Fi. His slacks are always dusted grey with the cement he carries on his bony shoulders two bags at a time, ropey muscles wrestling each other beneath his sweat-soaked shirt. On a quiet night, you can hear the electric concrete mixer grinding away and feel the faint thrumming through the floorboards like something alive. Apart from insisting that the rent is paid before nine o'clock in the morning every Monday, he seems an amiable enough fellow and leaves us to our devices. If your kitchen tap breaks, he will fix it within the day. And if a window blows out in a storm, he'll repair it pretty much immediately. And he must know exactly what the house is and exactly what it does. I was absolutely certain of that. The door to the basement is always locked when he's not down there. It's a great white thing of reinforced wood with an imposing padlock. I did speculate that I could probably duplicate the key if I pressed a plasticine mould of it while he slept, but there was no need. I have found certain passages and pathways within the house that allow access to areas I shouldn't be in, especially if one is mad enough to climb around the cliffside of the house. And when I can't afford my meds, or I just can't bring myself to swallow them and the mania kicks in. I'm more than mad enough. The room that was taken by the sea some 15 years ago still gapes open over the cliff like a wound that never heals. 
In the ruins of that place is a doorway, and that doorway leads to a boarded-up hallway with a hatch in the floorboards. From there I found I could enter a duct and crawl through it into the basement. It's cold down there, in the stone heart of the cliff, and the darkness lies heavy. A pull switch turns on a single dim bulb, barely illuminating the cracked foundations of the house and the rough wooden beams that shore up the floors. In the corner crouches the bulbous shadow of the concrete mixer, its long electrical cable looping up the stairs to the power outlet that feeds it, and empty bags of cement are scattered everywhere, half consumed by their own drifts of dust. As I hunch in the half-light, there's a hum and a whine, and the electric mixer turns on loose chunks of cement clanking inside it. In this house of edges, have you never wondered which is your own precarious precipice? His long legs take the steep steps three at a time, his close-cropped hair grazing one of the support struts. The strange shadows here distort perspective, and he seems impossibly tall, the angles of his limbs all wrong. Frightened and cornered, I glance around the room for another exit. The duct above me is too high to reach without assistance. Well, have you? The concrete is cold against my back, and my throat is drier than old cement dust. It... the house balances my moods. It gives me things to do when I'm high, and it blanks out my lows. And what price do you pay? I don't know. His teeth are too white under the dim orange bulb. His smile unnerving. See this crack? He gestures with a broad brown hand at the seaside wall, which drips glistening moisture. The crack runs floor to ceiling, widening at the base and arcing across the floor. Somewhere deep inside it, water sloshes in and out to the rhythm of the tide. No matter how much concrete you pour into it, the damn thing won't fill. A thousand bags I wasted once upon a time trying to solve the riddle. He's directly in front of me now, looming over me. I can smell the rank sweat and the clinging dust as he places his arms on the wall on either side of me. You have a choice to make about that crack. With each syllable, I feel the darkness widen, watch the thin edge race across the concrete as it spreads. If we don't fill it soon, the house will fall and all of us with it. Then fill the damn thing. I won't stop you. But with whom shall I fill it, dear Liza, dear Liza? But with whom shall I fill it, dear Liza, with whom? And it all makes a sudden horrible sense. While Jeremy has been feeding second-hand food to the house... The landlord has been feeding it too. With human lives. Why me? Why do I have to choose? Because that's your price. That's how you pay. The girl who had the room before me. The dancer. Who did she choose? The landlord's smile flickers and dies. Like his bulb has blown a fuse. 
she didn't choose. The floor shudders under our feet, and a cold wind howls out of the crack. Closing my eyes, I speak a single name. In her new room's dances, one lies a ledger, so spacious and safe the ground floor. She keeps records of sins, of all losses and wins, and when they don't balance, she must settle the score. I think the others know about the power I now wield. Mary is still friendly, but it's careful and deferent, like someone speaking to a minister or judge. And in a way, I suppose that's what I am. While the house is a living creature in its own strange way, it still requires human eyes and ears to keep track of its residents, to ensure that the pendulum never swings too far in either direction for any of the souls that make up its organs. I can feel every one of them. The others who tipped the balance. Those who became part of the foundations. Each of them thought they could beat the system, that they could take more from the house than it gave. And for a while, some of them did. They rattle their concrete chains deep within the filled-in chasm, bones through cement, hair mixed with stone. I don't feel sympathy for them. They knew the price, and they ultimately paid in full. I think my own price is worth it, and it comes with some perks. Ruby agrees. She says my new uniform is very beautiful. The dress fits like it was tailored for me. Oh, she'll need to wash it a few more times before the smell of formaldehyde comes out. But I've always loved orange and yellow, and it swirls so beautifully when the polka plays. You have no doubt known of an object that might be inconsequential to most people, but to you it holds huge sentimental value. Maybe an heirloom with a particularly treasured memory. In this tale, shared with us by author E.Z. Morgan, we meet a girl who discovers the dark story behind her special possession. Performing this tale are Sarah Thomas, Erica Sanderson, Aaron Lillis, and Alexis Bristow. So look out for the things and people you hold dear as we prepare to unravel seven hand-tied knots. For my 13th birthday, my bubby, grandmother, made me a bracelet. It was simple twine, hand-tied into seven knots. An odd birthday gift, for sure. 
but I thanked her anyway. Bubby was from Russia. She escaped just before World War II and never truly got over the family she lost to the Nazis. I thought maybe the bracelet was some sort of Jewish tradition that I didn't know about. My mother and I were very light on the religious part of Judaism, so Bubby was our resident expert. She caressed my face before tying it onto my left wrist. To keep you safe, now that you're a woman. I didn't think much of it, honestly. I assumed it would fall off in a few weeks. But as I grew older, the bracelet never came undone. It survived middle and high school, followed me to college, and lived with me as I made a life for myself in a neighborhood outside Boston. I got used to it. It was a little bit of Bubby I got to carry with me. A day ago, I woke up and found the bracelet was torn to shreds. I had no idea how this had happened. It was a calm night, and I certainly didn't cut things in my sleep. Needless to say, I was heartbroken. Even though it was only twine, it meant so much more to me. I vowed to ask Bubby for a new one when I visited next. I tried to call her at least once a week. She didn't live close, but hearing her speak was so soothing. It was full of love and warmth. Something about the Russian syllables in her voice made me feel safe. The words were angular and pointed, unlike my flimsy American accent. How is that girl you're dating? I could hear the sounds of cooking in the background. No matter how old she got, she never stopped making her amazing food. Slowing down was definitely not in her future. Ruth? We broke up a few weeks ago. I'm seeing a guy named Adam now. You'd like him. He can cook. You are always dating someone new. When will you settle down? Maybe never. Who needs a spouse anyway? Oh, Rebecca, you sound so like your mother. But when you were born, she finally understood. Understood what? My eyes drifted out of my apartment window. People walked the sidewalk below, some holding hands, others on their phones. It was a busy day in Brookline. I nearly missed her, but out of the corner of my eye, I saw something odd. It looked like a naked older woman wandering around the concrete. The natural order. There is birth, life, and death. All three must be experienced in order to be free, but not necessarily in that order. Bob, I have to call you back. There's something weird happening outside, and I need to go... Rebecca, do not go outside. I feel something unnatural. Bubby often got feelings about situations. It was one of those sweet old person things I figured was part of her growing up in Russia. Nothing ever happened, but she always felt better if I listened to her. I think I see someone who needs help. That is not a someone. Please, I beg you, stay inside. I heard something from her I had never experienced before. Fear. But how do you... <sighs> All right, Bubby. I'll stay inside. I love you, Bubba. The sounds of food making had stopped. She must have been standing still, something she rarely did. I love you too. I'll call you soon, okay? Yes, Rebecca. I sat for a second. The woman was still outside, pacing back and forth. 
Maybe she was lost or had Alzheimer's. She was a white woman with nearly no hair on her spotted head. There was a slight hunch to her spine. She wore no clothing, and her graying pubic hair stood out against the afternoon sun. Bubby's words echoed in my mind, but I felt a strong urge to disobey her. What if this woman needed help? What possible trouble could I get in for assisting her? All of the people passing by ignored her as if she were litter on the road. I made up my mind and headed down to the street. I lived in an old building above a record store. My apartment was the only unit. To get to the ground floor, I had to descend a staircase so small, I wondered if my round bubby could have even fit. I closed and locked the door, hopping down the steps as fast as I could. The old woman had vanished on my way down. I looked for her up and down the sidewalk. There were no signs of the naked woman. I even pulled someone aside and asked if they had seen her. All I got back was a strange look. It seemed like the woman had never existed at all. Defeated, I walked back up the long, slender staircase. As I reached the top of the steps, a cold feeling drenched my skin. My door was open. I could have sworn I locked it before checking on the woman. Tiptoeing closer, I peeked inside. Hello? Nothing rustled. Nothing moved. I took this as a good sign, slipping inside the door and closing it softly behind me. Something was stale in the air. It was hard to take a full breath in. I took hesitant steps towards the bedroom, an invisible thread pulling me in that direction. An urge blossomed in me to call Bubby. She would know what this was. But my phone was firmly in the pocket of my skirt, and my legs were moving without permission. I was finally in the doorway of the bedroom. There, I found the old woman, standing like a statue in the middle of the room. Somehow her presence was not a shock to me. Something seemed close to familiar. She moved her head but did not meet my gaze. A smile lifted her lips. How? I didn't know what to say, and the solitary word felt only appropriate. The woman was mere feet away from me. I could see her much better now. She stood straighter, her legs seemingly growing upward. They were so thin and rickety. Her eyes were white, reflectionless pools. There was something wrong about her in a way I felt in my soul. Fear rose like bile in my chest. She was not physically threatening, but the sudden appearance of her naked form left me in terror. I couldn't move. But you have evaded me for so long. But I found you now. I don't understand. She squatted slightly, a mocking smile on her face. There was a sickening sound of something wet moving within her. Suddenly, a fetus fell from between her legs. The umbilical cord twisted and danced, making the fetus look like some sort of disgusting puppet. Blood and other fluids caked the floor. The woman grabbed the cord and slung it over her shoulder. The fetus bounced against her breast. I wanted to scream, but nothing came out. Do you understand now, but... I still couldn't move, fully entranced by the terrifying sight. 
My thoughts ran wild. Who are you? She grabbed the fetus and stuffed its arm in her mouth, ripping it off and swallowing it whole. I have many names. Perhaps the most famous is Baba Yaga. But you shall call me Ima. I am your mother now. A mother brings forth life, and she can extinguish that flame just as quickly. That's when the words made sense. Bat, Hebrew for daughter. Ima, Hebrew for mother. This creature, whatever she was, was a part of my heritage. I was sorting all of this out in my head when I noticed that she was growing. Her stick legs stretched upward. Her breasts began to plunge to the ground, warts sprouting over the skin like ticks. The fetus that was once near her mouth was gone. I presumed she ate it entirely. The umbilical cord still swung from her open legs. Why are you here? I wanted so badly to run away. If only my feet would move. She now stood three feet above me, hunched over like a bent tree. Your family owes me a great debt. I saved your grandmother from death. And now you must repay what is due. You saved her? From what? From the evils that took the rest of her family. Bobby was only seven when she was secretly transported into the U.S. A Jewish family took her in, but she had no living relatives. She had always told me she was saved by a sympathetic Christian household. She never mentioned. How could she have? You smuggled her out of Russia? Nothing I said felt right. Even just speaking to this woman, this monster, was a nightmare. Baba Yaga laughed, yellow spit flying out of her horrible mouth. She prayed so many nights in her pathetic little straw bed. But there was no God to save her. Only me. You know who got taken out of Russia? Blonde, pretty children. Not crooked ones who couldn't walk. My breath was hot, but Bubby walked fine. She walked because I made it so. I fixed her so she would be acceptable. Kindness is only in the eyes, but... No ugly children made it past the Nazis. Suddenly, my sight was overtaken with a young girl, her legs bent in the wrong places, begging for help. A creature appeared to her. It was tall and hideous, reeking of death. But the little girl was not afraid. She had seen evil with her own eyes many times. The monster was just another atrocity to be committed to memory. The creature called itself Ema and promised to save her from certain death. When it asked for a life in return, the death seemed so far away. If the little girl could only escape, she would pay whatever the monster wanted. The bones in her legs began to break and reform. She struggled to not cry out in pain. 
The monster delighted in the torturous transformation. The little girl walked without a limp for the first time. She met the creature's eyes and said nothing, refusing to feel thankful. The scene shifted, and I felt the cramped muscles of the little girl as she was smuggled in crates. Weeks on the sea, the tides churning her stomach. Other children were dying of nameless diseases, but the little girl stayed strong. She had faced the Baba Yaga. She would face this too. My vision turned black, and slowly the room returned. I expected to see Baba Yaga, but she was gone. In a fit of relief, I collapsed onto the floor. I was so filled with emotion, I barely felt the pain of falling. Maybe she had been a dream, a nightmare. I touched my face carefully, eager to feel the life within my skin. Something fell across my left wrist. It was Bubby's bracelet, the one she had given me so many years ago. Except now, it was made of strands of gray hair, still tied into seven knots. I caressed it with nervous fingers. The ringing shocked me out of my stupor. It was my mother. I almost didn't answer, still reeling from the horrific experience I had just had. But I reluctantly accepted the call, pressing it to my ear. Hello? Maybe. Bobby just passed away. How? The doctors don't know yet. She called me just a little bit ago and told me she loved me and that she was going to do one last thing for us. Her tone worried me so much that I came over. She, she was already dead. But Rebecca, she was smiling. She was sitting in her favorite chair. A picture of you on her lap and smiling. And you're sure she's... Yes, sweetie. The doctors believe it was natural causes, although she had a large bald spot on her head. Almost as if someone had ripped the hair out. I looked down at my wrist. Seven intricately hand-tied knots made of soft, gray hair. I'll take the next flight out. I love you, Ma. I really believe that Bubby's bracelet protected me for all those years. It withstood so much. When it finally broke, so did our family. But Bubby would not let the Baba Yaga win. She lived through a war-torn country, knowing no English and being a refugee. She looked death in the eye and challenged it to take her. And take her, it did. But it couldn't take it all. Left to me was a small part of her. The part that lived to protect us. Accidents can be unexpected and take away so much. It might seem like any other normal day, but unbeknownst to you, there's something coming your way that will change your life forever. In this tale, shared with us by author F.I. Goldhaber, 
we meet a woman who deals with the aftermath of her accident in a decidedly dark way. Performing this tale are Nicole Doolin, Addison Peacock, and David Alt. So prepare to discover the torment of a musician who can no longer hear and the terrible lengths she'll go to in order to ensure she's no longer condemned to silence. Janine watched the drifting snowflakes, grateful for something that was supposed to be silent. She enjoyed the radiator's warmth, but couldn't hear its hissing. She smelled floor polish, but couldn't hear the machine the janitor used to scrub the hallway's worn linoleum. The empty dorm room with double bunk beds, matching built-in desks, and mismatched chairs oppressed her spirit. Her roommate had gone to the gym to dance jumping around to whatever rhythm she could feel with her feet from a band playing so loudly the musicians wore ear protection. But her roommate had never heard orchestras perform Beethoven and Mozart, had never coaxed a violin to play the Tchaikovsky concerto. Janine didn't belong in this school, in this silent world. She wanted to go home. Her breath frosted over the window pane. Letters scrolled across it in a childish cursive. What would you give up to hear again? Good question. She wouldn't want to lose her sight and the ability to read music. Without touch, her fingers would have difficulty finding the correct position on the strings. Taste and smell made the world more enjoyable, but neither enhanced her music. She stared at the window. Who'd written those letters? Blowing on the glass until they fogged over, she scrawled a word. Taste. The word faded away, and one by one, more letters appeared. Not enough. Janine shook her head. Was she having a conversation with a window? She fogged out the letters again. Who are you? Not who. What? She shuddered, have to be dreaming. She jammed her fingernail into her thumb. It hurt, but nothing changed. What are you? Your ability to hear. Janine almost fell backwards out of the window seat, clutching the upper bunk until she was steady on her feet. Her hand trembling so much, she could barely form letters. She dragged her finger across the chilled glass. What do you want? Your legs. She retreated until she smashed against the half-open door, slamming it closed. After the hit-and-run driver ran a stop sign, destroyed her Sentra, and stole her hearing, Janine had reeled against the gods, wished she'd not survived, gone on an unsuccessful vigilante's crusade to find the truck's owner, and imagined losing almost anything else besides her hearing. But her legs? She slid down until her rear landed hard on the cold floor, her back resting against the door. To play again. To hear Mendelssohn and Dvorak once more. But to never walk or run? 
How long would she have to spend in some institution designed to teach her how to use a wheelchair instead of how to function as a deaf woman in a hearing world? Could that be any worse? She closed her eyes and tried to imagine navigating the backstage corridors at Symphony Hall in a wheelchair. The building, erected in the early part of the previous century, was last renovated in the late 80s, long before the Americans with Disabilities Act. No way to get on stage that didn't require negotiating stairs. Another city? But it had been difficult enough to get a seat in a real orchestra, and she'd only moved up to first violin six months before the accident. Relocating meant beginning again. She hung her head. Even if she could find a way to get onto her own stage, she'd have to start over anyway. Her chair was probably filled months ago. When the hospital released her, she'd rebuffed any attempts by colleagues who reached out. She hadn't had the courage to contact anyone at the symphony to learn who'd taken her place. She'd even avoided reading the local newspaper, afraid that seeing news about concerts and performers would send her back into a tearful rage. Janine leaned her head against the door and held her hands in position, remembering the feel of polished wood, metal strings pressing into calloused fingertips, the smooth touch of ivory in her bowing hand. Your legs was still scrawled across the window, teasing her, taunting her with hope she'd banished months after she woke up and saw lips moving but heard nothing. No sound from the respirator or the other machines that surrounded her. No voices from the nurses' mouths. She'd wept until she believed she'd never be able to cry again. Her father moved her back into her old room in his house, boxes labeled music stacked against the wall. A tear crept down her cheek. For the last six months, she'd struggled so. The school tried to teach her lip reading, sign language, the manual alphabet, but the only language besides English she'd ever been able to understand in her entire life had been music. At conservatory, she'd failed at attempts to learn French, Spanish, German. Finally, she'd written a thesis to convince the department that music had its own vocabulary and begged to use that to fulfill her language requirement. Now she'd no way to support herself. From third grade onward, she'd worked toward only one goal, a career as a professional musician. She'd abstained from parties, dating, even friends. Her life revolved around practice and playing. An amateur violinist, her father took Janine to her first lesson when she was six and willingly supported her through conservatory and her first positions in two-bit orchestras that paid only for stage time. Finally, a real job with a professional orchestra and its salary allowed her to rent her own apartment. Now someone else lived in her four rooms. Someone else played the sofriti she saved five years to buy. She told her father to sell it, use the money to cover some of her medical bills. She looked at her slender legs, her legs for her music. Was that even a choice? Lifting her head, she stared at the letters on the window. Was she going mad? How could her ability to hear contact her through a fogged up window? And why did it want her legs? More words appeared on the window. 
entropy. For you, nothing else is equal sacrifice. She slapped her palm over her lips. Had she asked the question aloud? She hadn't spoken since the accident. The doctor said there was no damage preventing her from doing so. She just couldn't cope with the thought of making a sound she herself couldn't hear. For the past six months, all her communication had been via a tablet she carried with her. At one point, school staff took it away, attempting to force her to communicate with fingers, voice, eyes. She just crawled into a corner, paralyzed by the absence of words in her silent prison. For a week, staff schlepped her to the cafeteria, the bathroom, classes. That's what it would be like to have no legs. If she needed to enter a building without a ramp or climb stairs onto a stage, her father would have to carry her. Janine crawled back to the window and pulled herself up to the glass. Why? Pain is my pleasure. She closed her eyes. Whatever wrote those words wasn't her hearing. But I can give it back to you. Sweat trickled down the back of her neck. When? Choose by Saturday. Two days to decide whether to trust an apparition that could be a ghost or a demon or something worse. Two days to take what could be her final steps. Run for the last time. The colder air from the hallway made her shiver. The words disappeared from the glass, and she turned to watch her roommate Amanda's hands fly through shapes of words and letters. Janine handed her the tablet. Apparently, she'd missed a great party. She typed back that she'd rather be alone. Amanda shook her head and grimaced. She grabbed her toiletry kit and left the room again. Janine longed for a place where her toothbrush could stay in her sink, and she didn't have to remove her shampoo after her shower. She was too old for dormitory life. In the morning, Janine laced on her running shoes, left her tablet on her desk, and darted out the front door. Class started in ten minutes, but she didn't care. She wasn't a minor like most of the students. At her father's urging, she'd signed an immersion program agreement, but the school had promised what it couldn't deliver. After running across campus, she climbed over the chain-link fence and continued alongside the street. Rain stung her face and plastered her hair to her head. Passing cars threw plumes of water onto the sidewalk, so she stayed close to the grass along the other side. Front lawns became smaller as she neared downtown. She ran until a stitch in her side forced her to stop and catch her breath. The ache was nothing compared to the pain of practicing ten hours a day to build up the required calluses on her fingers. She leaned over with her hands on her knees, panting. The exhilaration of wind on her face could never compare to the thrill of fingers dancing over the fingerboards. The bow and extension of her right arm as it sang across the strings. Janine looked up and watched a woman chugging toward her on a motorized scooter. Wrapped in a down coat, she looked as if she weighed almost 300 pounds, her rear end flowing over the wheelchair seat. Janine stepped aside. She could walk faster than the woman was moving. If I have no way to exercise, how fast will I gain weight? 
Would it matter? It's not like I have a girlfriend to care whether or not I'm attractive. Leaning over, Janine grasped her ankles to stretch out her calves before they froze up. How would she stay limber enough to play if she had to give up running and yoga? Those gave her stamina needed to spend hours standing in front of her music stand, her bow warbling, her fingers seeking the notes, until she could play them perfectly. Her head down, she turned and plodded back to campus, ignoring cars, people, and dogs passing her. When she slunk in through the staff entrance, the security guard grabbed her arm and marched her to the superintendent's office. Sitting in the all-too-familiar chair across from the woman's desk, Janine stared at her hands in her lap, ignoring Mrs. Silva's attempts to communicate with her. Finally, the woman stuck a tablet under her eyes, chastising her for leaving without permission, missing class, and not letting anyone know where she was going. Janine refused to respond, and she ignored additional admonitions typed onto the tablet. Eventually, she was escorted back to her room and left alone. Janine just stared at the window. A crippled musician or a useless runner. Not much of a choice. The following morning, Janine had to work harder to escape the building, pretending to go to breakfast and dashing out the cafeteria side door. This time she headed east, past the prison and the shopping mall out to where the houses became further apart. A cop car pulled into a driveway, blocking the sidewalk in front of her, and two officers in dark blue uniforms stepped out into her path. She tried to ignore them, catching her breath, stretching. They gestured wildly. One of them knew sign language, but of course Janine didn't. When the woman tried to take Janine's arm, she ducked, turned, and jogged back toward the school. The squad car followed. She could feel the heat of its engine at her heels. She couldn't believe the school called the police. What did they tell the cops? That she was unstable? A danger to herself? If she'd been in a wheelchair, they'd have had no trouble taking her back by force. On the other hand, if she could play her violin, she wouldn't be trapped in a school with curricula designed to teach people who'd never heard a note. She'd have no reason to run away. Slowing, she trudged along the sidewalk until she had to step aside to let a man coming in the opposite direction wheel by in his chair. He wore padded gloves and his wheels tilted in toward a narrow seat. In smooth motions, his hands reached back, pulled the wheels forward, and reached back again, moving him along at a fair clip. Like her, he wore only a windbreaker and tracksuit against the rain. She wondered if wheeling the chair at that pace gave him a cardio workout. Janine watched until he disappeared over the hill. The security guard waited for her in front of the main entrance. She climbed the wide steps, resisting an urge to turn back and wave to her police escort. He held the door open for her, then followed her to her room. He left her there so she figured she was expected to stay, not that she had a desire to go anywhere else. Janine stared at the window. Since the rare snowfall Wednesday night, it hadn't been cold enough outside for the room's heat to steam up the glass. Tomorrow she had to decide, and she still could make up her mind. Legs or list. 
walking or Wagner, running or Ravel. At least if she was confined to a wheelchair, she could count on her father's assistance. His disastrous idea to send her to this school had been a desperate attempt to find a way to overcome her hearing loss, something she could never do. But he was tall and strong, while she'd inherited the petite figure of the woman who died when she was born. Always there to help her tackle life's obstacles, he could carry her upstairs when necessary, encourage her efforts to navigate the world without legs, support her until she could earn her way back into an orchestra. The light outside grew dim, clouds turned orange, and the sky faded to black. Her roommate never returned, probably asked for reassignment. Couldn't blame her. Janine crawled into her bunk without removing her clothing. A hand on her shoulder woke Janine, and she opened her eyes to her father's worried frown. Home? But she could still see the upper bunk above her. She grabbed her father and clung to him, sobbing against his shoulder. Her dad rocked her back and forth for a while then pulled away and reached for the tablet on Janine's desk. It wouldn't turn on. She hadn't charged it since Wednesday. She got out of bed, the cold air from the hall making her shiver. Digging the charger out of the bottom desk drawer, she handed him the cord. Her father typed some words. You need to pack. You've been kicked out. The staff's given up on you. Because of the furrows between her father's brows and his turned-down lips, Janine suppressed her grin. She just dragged her suitcase out from under the bed and emptied her drawers into it. Don't you care that you've been thrown out? What will you do? How will you survive in a hearing world with no training? The superintendent said you refused to learn sign language or even try to lip-read. Janine sat on the suitcase to lock it, staring at the window fogged over from the cold outside. She reached for the tablet. How did you get here? I rented a car at the airport and drove down. I'll meet you in the parking lot. How long? Five minutes. It wasn't like Janine had made any friends she wanted to say goodbye to. She only had one thing to take care of, and she didn't want anyone to see that. Watching her dad carry the suitcase out of the room, Janine hesitated for a moment. Did she really want to be completely dependent on her father again? She pressed her lips together. Even if she couldn't be independent, she'd do whatever was necessary to get back into an orchestra, including practicing 15 hours a day to make up for the last six months. Once she was employed again, at least she wouldn't be a financial burden to him. Turning to the window, Janine hesitated, one finger hovering over the glass. Could she trust whatever was making the offer? Did she dare accept what had to be a deal with the devil? Or a pact with a poltergeist? She took a deep breath. As long as she had her father's support, she could endure whatever pain was required, do however much work was needed, to get her hearing and her life back. Yes. You can take only my legs if I can have my hearing back exactly the way it was. She waited. The letters didn't fade. No others took their place. With a sigh, she breathed on the window until they disappeared and made her way out to the parking lot. 
She'd probably dreamed the entire conversation Wednesday night. Her father stood next to a green sedan stomping in the cold. As soon as he saw Janine, he climbed into the driver's seat and started the engine. Janine slid into the passenger side and fastened her seatbelt. Backing out of the parking space, her father negotiated the left turn out of the lot and headed toward the freeway. Janine adjusted the heat. What if it wasn't a dream? Had she made the right choice? Would she regret believing words that appeared on a fogged-up window? She still had no clue what fiend or angel, imp or goblin, had contacted her and how it would make the exchange. If she were transported back in time to the accident and the hit-and-run driver stole her legs there instead of her hearing, she wouldn't have lost the last six months to not practicing. Maybe she'd wake up in the morning in rehab, learning to handle a wheelchair. The light turned green and her father guided the sedan onto the street that led up the hill to the freeway entrance. With a sudden jolt, the car moved sideways, slamming Janine against the passenger door. She jerked her head to see her father bleeding, covered in glass, squished between side and front airbags, his head at an odd angle. They smashed into the light pole and everything went black. Pain and sirens penetrated her senses at the same time. Her legs were on fire, her feet, shins, and calves screaming in excruciating agony. Voices shouted and lights flashed blue and red. It hurt to breathe. Blackness enveloped her again. Janine woke to the murmurs of people in scrubs, the ticking of a respirator counting her breaths, and the beeping of a cardiac monitor. The tube down her throat prevented her from speaking, so she tried to determine what the people around her were saying. At first, she couldn't make out any words and worried that her hearing was defective. Then one of the nurses noticed she was awake and made hand gestures that looked like bad sign language. Janine just pointed to the tube. They poked and prodded her, muttering about oxygen levels and respirations. Finally, they removed the tube and she tried to form words. Her throat hurt and her voice was raspy, but she spoke for the first time in six months. I can hear. The faces she could see looked startled. A man wearing a white jacket over his scrubs approached her. Can you understand me? He spoke slowly, but didn't mouth his words in the annoyingly exaggerated way so many people had done when she was deaf. She nodded. Are you in pain? We've given you a small amount of morphine, but we didn't want to administer too much until you woke up. Her legs didn't hurt as much as her right side. It's bearable. My legs? Every muscle in his face fell. I'm so sorry, Janine. Your legs were crushed in the accident. I'm afraid we had to amputate them both above the knee. She nodded. That was the deal. Dad? The doctor's head dropped to his chin. We did everything we could, but the semi hit the driver's side and he took the brunt of the collision. Is there any other family we can contact? Janine just stared at him, trying to parse his words. 
My hearing for just my legs. My hearing for just my legs. Not my father. Oh God, what have I done? How will I survive alone? No, 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 no! She bargained with Beelzebub and it cost her everything. Her father paid the price of her selfishness. And now she was alone in the world. What did it matter if she could hear if she'd no one to take her to lessons, rehearsals, concerts? Where would she live without her father's income to pay the mortgage? How would she purchase a new violin without his help? She thought losing her hearing was the worst possible thing that could happen to her. Across the room, letters formed words in gray pixels on the black screen of the television. Sweet, sweet, succulent suffering. In our final tale, we meet a woman who's a little unlucky in love. She doesn't have trouble finding partners, it's nothing like that. But as shared with us by author Sarah Fannin, sometimes there can be more to the perfect relationship than meets the eye. Performing this tale are Jessica McAvoy, Addison Peacock, and Jeff Clement. So prepare to lose yourself in this tale of doomed romance, but maybe don't fall in too deep in case you become consumed. I never mastered how to properly cook an egg. Sometimes I would hold the cool thing in my hand, graze the small bumps on its otherwise spoon-smooth surface and whisper to it, Please don't disappoint me. Then I would tap it against the rim of the pan and pull it open so its guts spilled out and sizzled. I think where it'd start to go wrong is that I'd be so focused on getting it right, on the precision of cracking an egg, that I'd forget what kind of eggs I planned on making. Scrambled? Sunny side up? An omelette? And then it would morph into something rubbery, overcooked, or just ugly. Still, I never stopped trying. I thought of my house as an empty nest, but not in the sense that it had once been full of my own birds. It was more like I had stumbled onto someone else's discarded nest. Children's names and heights were written on the bedroom doorframe. I liked to check where I lined up. It was always just below Jonah, age 12. Jonah had sprouted a foot taller by 15. Winnie, his sister, maintained a steady height, crawling a quarter of an inch by inch through the years. I imagined when they were young, height was a competition, and they'd puff out their chests and sneakily stand on their toes while they got their parents to measure for them. Nights when the quiet of every room was too much, I stood under the names and checked that I was still Jonah, age 12. 
I never took a pencil to the line of my head because I didn't belong there. But I liked to imagine what it'd be like to have a sibling, someone built into my life to stay. That morning, I put my mediocre eggs on toast. The Saturday sun was muted by my curtains, and there was a comfort in the womb-like darkness. I wrote down my grocery list. Milk. Flowers to replace the dying marigold centerpiece. Chocolate truffles for my after-dinner snack. And a carton of 12 eggs. I did make other things for dinner sometimes, but eggs reminded me of the chicken coop my parents had kept their whole lives. They had died in a car accident almost a year before, so I'd begun consuming eggs to consume home. I let it ring, wondering if it was a good call or a telemarketer, but not moving to get it. The automated voice message played. It was a robotic feminine voice that I kept instead of immortalizing my tinny voice for anyone who called. At the brief beep, a honeyed voice came on. Hi Georgia, it's Marilyn. I had a lovely time yesterday, and I don't know if the day after is too soon, but I wanted to see if you had any plans this weekend. She paused, so I steadied myself and then got up to answer. Good morning, Marilyn. Oh, I didn't expect... Sorry, I was in the shower. But I caught most of what you said because I was just drying off my hair before it dripped all over the kitchen floor. I ran a hand through my hair and could almost imagine it felt wet. So, um, is it desperate to call so soon? Not at all. Would you like to go for a drive tonight? Tonight? Definitely. I can pick you up at eight. Where do you live? I'm the corner house on Bradley and Forest. Great, I'll see you then. Bye, Georgia. I nestled the phone in its cradle and sighed. Now I had to pick out something to wear. I walked upstairs to my room and eyed the closet of grays and blacks and dark blues. There was one pleated pink dress with white polka dots and a Peter Pan collar that my mother had given me for Christmas one year. I had never worn it. As I laid my hand against the soft skirt of it, it felt like a good date dress. I took it off its hanger and laid it across the bed for later. It looked like a crime scene's chalk outline of a 50s housewife. At the grocery store, I picked up an egg carton and checked each egg for cracks. As I turned the 11th egg over, A man with bad posture but impeccable hair sidled up to me. Afternoon, miss. I dropped the egg in its spot and closed my eyes in frustration. The man put his hands in his jean pockets and smiled sheepishly. Didn't mean to frighten you. You don't frighten me. I looked at him until he smiled again out of discomfort. I just wanted to tell you that... You look simply gorgeous in that dress. I looked down at my gray woolen dress. It had black buttons up to my neck and flattened my already flat chest, but it came down to a few inches above my knees, so I imagined he was lost somewhere in my thigh area. Thank you. Do you think maybe I could be bold enough to ask for a date? I couldn't possibly weigh in on that debate. 
I don't know you. <laughs> he let out a wild laugh, and I caught his glance melting down my legs like sunscreen. Bingo. More importantly, I already have a date tonight. Thank you. Oh, lucky fella. Maybe if he doesn't work out... Lucky she's not a fella, maybe. His eyes widened, and he stuttered like every man realizing he couldn't take everything for granted. Oh, uh, lucky lady, then. S sorry. I wasn't the kind of girl who got asked out as casually as if the man were calling out my deli ticket number. So I imagined I wore a kind of Marilyn glow. An expectant joy that this man wanted to have for his own. It made me feel giddy. Enjoy the rest of your shopping trip. I continued toward the cheese. I'd already decided on an omelet for tomorrow morning. Marilyn's bangs had a surreal quality of staying put, even when she moved her head. I was fascinated, watching them out of the corner of my eye as if I could catch them in the act. For a woman who talked so much, it seemed unlikely that her bangs would cooperate. Or maybe she talked a normal amount, and I just undersupplied in our conversation. It was hard for me to tell. The automatic headlights blinked out because it had been five minutes since I had parked in front of the beach. Dusk was yawning her way over the sky, and several parents were corralling their kids off the sand and back to their cars. What about you? What was your school like? She had just finished a story about a girl who had cut her hair in eighth grade at a sleepover and kept it in a leather coin purse. I thought it sounded terribly romantic but I had apparently misunderstood a few major points. I watched her reach behind her ear to feel where the scissors had nicked her. I could just make out the pink line. I'm the cliché. All girls boarding school. You're kidding. What a dream. It was, and it wasn't. I could tell she wanted me to carry on, but my mind was stuck on whether that girl still had her hair. Did you get any action? She rested her hand on my thigh briefly, but took it back. The memories of girls came like postcards, lovely and brief, touching the underbelly of a scalp under strawberry blonde curls, then down the nape of her neck, brushing against a knee that had a triangle made of freckles, an accident the first time, but not the second or third, kissing a dark brown wrist right at the crossroads of her veins. Not really. Make something up for me, then. Instead of making one up, we could make our own. Marilyn smiled and leaned forward, but was abruptly pulled back by the seatbelt. Oh my god. I can't believe I just ruined the moment with a lifetime habit of keeping my seatbelt on even when we're stopped. She unbuckled it, and I put a hand on her cheek. You didn't ruin the moment. You couldn't. While we kissed, I wondered if my mouth was going to look like a crime scene. But when we stopped and opened our eyes, her lipstick had barely smudged. I didn't wear lipstick, so I didn't know the mechanics. But that seemed like a small miracle. You're the strangest person I've ever met, Georgia. Not what every girl wants to hear after kissing someone. Maybe not. 
I just mean, it's a delight to know you. We just met. It works like that with some people. I knew what she meant and agreed, but I knew I had to be guarded. I'd like to see you again, if you want. I'd like to see you too. You know, sitting in the car like this, in the dark, with you in that dress, I feel kind of like vintage lesbians. <laughs> Thank God we're not, though. Fair enough. She leaned over for another small kiss. I don't want to stop when we just got started, but I should get home. Early shift at the hospital. Could you drop me off? No. I had a mind to drive through the night and keep you to myself. Well, if you're taking requests, I've never been to Colorado. I started the engine and pulled back into the street. We'll start with your house. Colorado can wait for another night. I dropped Marilyn off, and she gave me a chaste kiss before hopping out of the car and running into her home. It was reminiscent of movies I'd seen of teenage lovers, the bad boy bringing her home past her curfew. I'd forgotten what it was like to have a real job. Inheritance money had kept me above water while I did freelance work here and there. That night, when I combed my hair in front of the mirror, I started when I noticed a small pink scar behind my ear. I turned my head to get a better look, touching a memory I didn't have. In bed, I thought about the first time I met Marilyn. In my pre-sleep weariness, it felt almost like a dream. She had been reading on a blanket in the park. Mrs. Dalloway. Her face was scrunched and focused. I knew I'd picture it all day, and maybe the rest of the week if I didn't stop by. When I walked over, my shadow draped across her, and she looked up. You're sitting in the best spot in the park. Mind if I share it? Marilyn looked puzzled, but amused. She padded next to her. Sure, that's why I brought a blanket this big. I sat crisscross beside her, and I could sense her uneasiness, but not the threatened kind. Her fingers were caught between Mrs. Dalloway, a makeshift bookmark. Do you normally join strangers at the park? You're the first. I'm Georgia. I put my hand out to shake. Marilyn. Now we're not strangers. She grinned and set down her book, losing whatever page she was on. I liked the recklessness of it. She could have found a strand of grass or rummaged in her purse for whatever receipt she probably used as a bookmark. But instead, she decided to lose her place, to find one with me. As I asked about her reading taste, I noticed the telltale signs of interest. Flushed cheeks, nervous wringing of her hands, a shyness that seemed about more than being a stranger. It made me feel warm and visible. Do you have plans tonight? Not yet. She said it with a smirk, shifting her body to face me a little more. She probably hadn't realized she did it. Come with me to the movies tonight. I'll buy the popcorn and everything. What are we seeing? Whatever's playing. We had grinned like co-conspirators and arranged to meet at the theater. I got there early to order a bucket of popcorn, 
two sodas, and a box of milk duds. The experience in the darkness of the theater was innocent. No boyish attempts to put my arm around her. No making out in the back. We were just two pretty girls in the center seats of the center row, our hands occasionally touching as we scooped popcorn into our palms. I took more popcorn than I wanted to eat just for that thrill. It made my stomach feel tight, but I couldn't stop reaching. At the end of the evening, we stood by the curb, Marilyn stepping up and down while she theorized about the detective from the film. I had barely paid attention to the plot. Instead, I reveled in the sensation of sitting next to someone who was there to be in my orbit. That kind of mutually enjoyed company was intoxicating. When we said goodbye, I squeezed her hand and kissed her cheek, just in case. I didn't want to overwhelm her and risk not getting another date. I chastised myself for even thinking ahead. It'd be easier if we went separate ways. How many fools had a good first date, craved more, and selfishly set themselves on a path of self-destruction? It was better to preserve that first date feeling and move on. Otherwise, that pleasant stranger became close, tangled up in you, until one day they were a stranger of a different kind, painful to peel off your skin. But sometimes I couldn't resist. I'll give you my number and won't ask for yours. Then I'll know if you're really interested. Also, it's my home phone number. Do people still have those? It's cheaper than a cell phone. But what about your friends? I shrugged, wanting to change the subject. I'd be a lot less alluring if I admitted I didn't have many friends to speak of. I make it work. I'll call you. She winked and I watched her skip down the sidewalk. Now, as I lay in bed, curled up in soft memories of her, I wondered if it would be a mistake to see her again. Two dates wasn't much, but the passion was already burning bright. It was Marilyn, and as soon as I heard her voice, all caution left me. I asked if she wanted to come over for dinner the next night. When I asked her what kind of eggs she liked, she told me to surprise her. After a feast of four different kinds of eggs, because I thought I might be more successful if I was trying to impress someone, we sat on the couch, my legs laying across her lap. She ran a lazy hand through my hair. It's so blonde, like the sun painted it. I had red hair before this, you know. Why'd you change it? I don't know. It felt right. My last girlfriend was the brightest blonde I'd ever seen. And when you look at something with love every day, it can start to feel like yours, even when it's not. You definitely rock it. I'd love to see photos of you as a redhead, though. Don't have any. None at all? Wasn't it your natural color? No, I've been all kinds of shades. Just don't tend to take photos of myself. You're so old fashioned, oh my god. I leaned over and kissed the crook of her neck. It's endearing, don't you think? She rolled her eyes, but laid her hand on my thigh. She brushed my kneecap with her fingers. I like that little freckle constellation. It's the cutest little triangle. Thanks. 
For a moment, I thought about faking a yawn, telling her it was nice to have her over and that I'd drop her at home, that I'd call soon and then wouldn't. But she trailed her hand up and down my thigh and smiled with her poppy pink lips, and I decided I'd spent too many nights in an empty nest. I woke up at midnight, stirred awake by the unfamiliar presence of another body in my bed. My body never adjusted until someone sharing my space became routine, and that almost never happened. Moving quietly so as not to wake her, I went to the bathroom and found there were new teeth in my mouth. I ran my tongue along the bottoms, the faint taste of bacon lingering from her meal. I traced their shape, chomped down a few times. I felt sick to my stomach. In the morning, I reached out a hand that wasn't mine to trace Marilyn's back. She arched like a cat and yawned before turning over to face me. There were two fleshy stretches of pinched skin where her eyes used to be. I covered my mouth with my hand to stifle the sound of horror threatening to escape. She began to smile, her cheeks like fresh peaches, her mouth empty of teeth, and I could feel my heart holding its breath, waiting for the moment she realized it wasn't dark because she hadn't opened her eyes. Rest. I closed my own eyes, which must have been newly brown, the color of violin resin, to kiss her forehead with both regret and repulsion. But she trailed off, and I could see her face muscles scrunch, working to move something. She reached out with her one working hand, not seeming to realize there was only a stump at the end of the other arm and felt the blankness of her face with slow fingers. I swore the house rattled with her scream. I often had nightmares that my wallpaper retained them, waiting to unleash them at once so I'd drown. My eyes. Hearing the muffled state of her voice, she groped inside her mouth. And I could see her breathing get heavier as she encountered soft gums. She struggled to speak until I heard a word that sounded like hospital. There's nothing they can do. I'm sorry, Marilyn. That was true, not a sadistic lie to protect myself. It didn't always go this fast. Sometimes it was weeks without any sign at all, giving me a false sense of security until I shared a bathtub with someone who searched for the birthmark on her calf, only to find it on mine. But Marilyn was a quick flame. I took her in my arms, and she resisted, but I held on tight to force a sense of calm. Her sobbing turned to hiccups, turned to sudden, mute silence. She rested her head on my shoulder, and I could feel her hair starting to fall out. Tears welled up and trailed down my face. I wiped my mouth and found pink lipstick residue on the back of my hand. 
she hadn't washed it all off last night. I set Marilyn on my bed and left the room so I wouldn't have to watch her become limbs, and then bones, and then nothing at all, not even the sleep sand between her eyes. Sometimes it happened in my sleep, and I couldn't say goodbye. I liked to imagine they end up on an island somewhere, with birds colored like magician handkerchiefs, and sand warm enough to nap on. Sometimes I even wished I could be there with them all, lounging in the sunlight in a yellow bathing suit, and skin that wasn't borrowed, tossing my windswept head to look at the collection of girls I had adored so fiercely. I went downstairs to stand against the wall. My body kept a token from each mistake, even as it changed. But always... I was just below Jonah, age 12. It was a relief that never lost power. I wore her wrists now. I moved my hands around to hear the cracking joint sounds and wondered if they could make eggs. As the lights come back on, our stories come to an end. Please remember to be kind and rewind. And visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this production. And on their behalf, we thank you for being a supportive, sleepless member. This audio production is copyright 2019 by Creative Reason Media Inc., all rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media Inc.